1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito.
2: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a special treat. We have a guest, Darcy Winslow, who is returning to share with us an amazing adventure she's been on. Darcy was with us a couple of months ago, and she's founder of the DSW Collective, and that stands for Designs for a Sustainable World. She's a pioneer and an active practitioner of sustainability frameworks, and she's going to talk just a bit about that. And she's a former Nike executive who's had a long career at global, um, initiatives and working to make the world a better place through commerce. Darcy, welcome to Leading Conversations again.
3: Thank you, Cheryl.
2: It's great to have you here today.
3: Well, it's great to be back. And, you know, the first time that we spoke, I was, you know, on the edge of my seat uh, anticipating this expedition. Yeah. And now uh, to be able to come back and talk about it is
2: just great. So, the expedition that Dorothy is referring to is an expedition to Antarctica. BP Oil has put together and organized a trip through, um, well, I'm going to let you talk about this, Darcy, but it was basically um, in connection with Robert Swan, the polar explorer, and taking youth to get up close and personal to our planet. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about what this trip was all about.
3: Sure. Um, This was actually the brainchild of a wonderful, wonderful woman, Vivian Cox, who is the senior VP, CEO of VP's Alternative Energy Division. And she started thinking about this almost two and a half years ago, and it was really intended to create an experience, a transformational, hands-on, visceral experience around climate change and really creating the space for people to have conversations about this. When she first uh, started talking to her colleagues, she had envisioned taking 50 global business leaders on this expedition. And over time, with input from several advisors, Peter Senke being one of them, he said, you know, we really need to shift the experience the upcoming youth leaders. And that's how uh, we ended up with 50 just amazing global youth leaders as part of the expedition. And again, it was really focused on climate change. And with the Antarctic being the uh, the goal uh, of the experience, the Antarctic holds so much of our history in terms of what has happened over, you know, 500,000 years. Mm. Uh, with the climate, how that's been changing, and what is happening literally right before our eyes. (laughs) And we actually, I I can talk about that a little bit later, the day that we returned from uh, our expedition and landed in Argentina to go back to our various homes in 20 countries around the world. One of the largest ice shelves just south of our southernmost uh, landing point broke. The Wilkins Ice Um, Shelf. That happened in April, right? That happened April 6th. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Yes. And uh, so things are happening much more rapidly than they had even predicted. So to be a part of that, to experience that, um, is pretty amazing.
2: Mm. Now this team, this youth team, um, and this expedition um, was related to Robert Swan's initiative called 2041. Can you just give us the highlights of what that's about? Sure,
3: 2041 uh, is the company that Robert Swan founded, and it was based on the Antarctic um, moratorium in 1991 to ban mining and drilling in the Antarctic. Um, And that will expire in 2041 unless we take every effort uh, possible to continue that moratorium. The, the partner in 2041 is a woman named Ann Kershaw, and she co-founded 2041 with Robert. Her husband was a pilot in the Antarctic, and, um, of which Robert used several times. And, unfortunately, Anne's husband was killed in a flying accident in the Antarctic and actually has a mountain range named after him, the Kershaw Range. But they talk about the Antarctic as being
4: um,
3: east of the moon, west of the sun, Mm -hmm. and south of everything else. (laughs) And it's truly uh, the highest, the coldest, the driest, windiest place on Earth and no one actually owns it. But there are 14 countries that have a presence on Antarctica. So it's a really, really powerful organization, and their goal is to reach the masses in a way that they feel like they're personally empowered to lead lead change around this. Mm -hmm. And while not everybody can go to Antarctica, nor should they, um, he sends the message that, since we've had the privilege to have that experience, it is now part of our responsibility to take that message out to the masses mm. so what
2: was the the first think of tell us about the first day you were there when you arrived I know you went in through um shhua Argentina you know mm-hmm. And um, and and then you, did you get on a boat and go over to the actual ice floes? Uh,
3: yes, actually. We arrived in Ushuaia, Argentina, <clears throat> a day in advance of the students, and it was the 2041 team, the BP team, and the facilitation team, so myself, Peter Senge, Roger Burton, and David Noble. And... We convened to really discuss uh, and to plan what the learning sessions would be while we were still on land and then while we were on the ship crossing the Drake Passage and then en route to our various uh, stopping points on the continent uh, the second day, the students and the esteemed academics and climate scientists began to arrive, so the the energy really, really started to build. And about, and so we spent a day in sessions, really, one, getting to know each other face to face because we'd only met for the six weeks prior in the Antarctic Village, which is um, very similar to Second Life, a virtual village. So we all had avatars.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So we had to, you know, really. Uh, get to learn each other and what they really look like and not like their avatars, (laughs) which was really an interesting experience. Um, And then we started forming around projects that the students were already involved in or had interest in becoming involved in. So that was the early forming stage. And then um, Robert Swan literally rode up on his bike uh, to to the, the resort, the lodge where we were staying, and meeting at about three hours before we boarded the ship. Uh, He had just landed from another expedition, and it was our first experience with Robert, and he is truly, truly an inspirational man, just larger than life, and what he has accomplished and what he has inspired in people, you know, I really can't do it justice. Mm. Well, now,
2: let's talk a little bit about BP and Vivian Cox. She, as you said, is the is a senior executive VP, and she's also chief executive of their Alternative Energy Division. And I have read that she actually um, was the one to create this division and has designed it so that it ha- it's, it's an, an entity in itself, uh, apart from BP, in essence. Can you explain to us how that happens in an organization?
3: Well, it's always a risk to try and speak for someone else, but uh, what Viv was able to overcome and to create was actually pretty astounding. And she said that, uh, you know, it's a very interesting business environment for her because as the alternative energy business grows, the more successful it is, it potentially cannibalizes their traditional uh, hydrocarbon business. Right. So it's a very interesting balance, and, you know, it's not been without its challenges over the years, and especially in this climate,
4: mm-hmm. but
3: she has really uh, maintained her commitment to this, and she believes that, and we all believe that, you know, we're in a moment of transition and that there is an opening and a possibility for us to really start to reach this tipping point.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so you know, that's her her um, desire to really make this expedition happen and to mobilize, you know, all of us, but especially these fifty glo- global youth leaders, to go back into their networks or to their organizations and to rapidly accelerate the message and. to to take that message and help turn that into here's what we can do. Here's what we can do individually. Here's what we can do
2: collectively. Well, and that is so important. What we um, know is that for a long time the conversation around climate change has happened at a very high scientific level and bringing it down to um, what can the individual do or what can small organizations do um, other than, um, you know, change their light bulbs, um, you know, it, I mean, it, I, mean I, I don't mean to be facetious about that, but it, it sometimes seems like the, the simplest kinds of changes, people really wonder, is this really going to make a difference, you know, if I change my light bulbs? And, you know, of course, in fact, it will. And there must be things that individuals can do on a larger scale that will have larger impact. And so is that um, the kind of thing that you were wanting to, that hoping that these youth would take away from this expedition?
3: It, yes,
2: and um, I think one of the, the messages that
3: we really, really talked about was systems dynamics mm. and how it is all connected. And uh, I'd like to attribute uh, this quote to... Another woman, Molly Baldwin, who heads up a, a fantastic organization called ROCA in Chelsea, Massachusetts. But she says that systemic change happens only through seemingly insignificant shifts in habits. So back to your example, yes, changing our light bulbs will make a difference, uh, but we have to do more. And that's where, you know, the statistics of how rapidly um, we are seeing climate change <clears throat> excuse me, climate change happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an urgency and that's where this window of opportunity, some estimate between now and twenty twelve, is when we really, really have to take aggressive measures if we are to avoid catastrophic impacts of climate change.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: so I think what everyone took away was how do I how do I balance the reality of the data yet turn it into change and and create a sense of what we came to call sustainable inspiration Mm -hmm. and translating that message to wherever you sit in the world. We had folks, we had a woman from Malawi, so the actions that they take may be very different uh, than the actions that we need to take in the developed world. So I think everyone is sitting with that. Now there are multiple... uh, Projects that people have undertaken, are undertaking right now. And we're staying in very close contact. But one of the, the actions that we've committed to is to collaborate and make the connections as much as possible so that you, you build momentum, that there is power and size, you know, against a particular action and not just random acts of kindness around the world.
2: Right, right. It could make such a huge difference. Darcy, we have much more to talk about right after this break.
5: From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business.
1: more and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the Journey with Karen humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk.
5: From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We have our guest, Darcy Winslow, with us today, speaking about her expedition to Antarctica with BP and a a group of youth, 50 of them, um, looking at the systemic issues around climate change and survival of the Earth. So, Darcy, in our last segment, you mentioned sustainable inspiration. You know, you want to get people inspired to the point of feeling really connected to the earth and potential changes that they can make influence over time. Let's think about a leader, you know, say an emerging leader moving into some level of large organizations or small organizations Give us your picture of this leader. What would be important to this person? How would they lead differently than, say, you know, current leaders or leaders of the last 20 years?
3: Wow, that is a great question. Um, I think first and foremost is being a truly global citizen. Mm and having an understanding of what is happening in other parts of the world, the lives, uh, you know, of other people uh, other than ourself, other than, you know, the individual organization in which, you know, that leader has, quote, control over. Um, I think leaders of the future must be fantastic systems thinkers. Mm. Again, really understanding what is connected to what. Um, Leaders who build relationships. Um, And again, you've got me thinking on my feet. But I think also uh, a a sense of surely confidence, but also a sense of urgency.
4: Mm.
3: and also balance and balance in what that particular organization, what its reason for being is other than just to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think to uh, a level of inclusion and collaboration such as we've never seen before and what that unprecedented level of collaboration looks like to be able to
2: not just articulate that, but to model that. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Did you see any of that modeled on a small scale during the expedition? Any of that collaboration?
3: Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in part that came from the experience of crossing the Drake Passage, which I want to come back to a question you asked earlier that okay, once our time was up in Ushuaia, did we get on a boat and go over to, you know, the ice? And actually we were schooled very early on that it was not a boat, it was a ship. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And it was actually a 117-meter Russian working ship. Wow. Um, And I'm very happy that the... The captains, the crew were as skilled as they were because we ended up in the worst storm of the season, crossing the Drake Passage, oh, wow. and, and the Drake Passage is already uh, renowned for being the worst and most unpredictable seas in the world. And we ended up in a gale force nine, verging on ten storm for almost 36 hours, and we were in 40 foot seas again in a. 117-meter ship. We actually had stabilizers, Um, but it was so bad that at one point, and Robert said he had never experienced this in any of his crossings at the Drake Passage, but the crew decided that we needed to, what they call, hove Mm to, which meant they shut all engines off with the exception of two stabilizing uh, engines for five hours because the seas were so bad we could not make any more forward progress, and it was just so hard on the people in the, the ship itself. And we found out later that um, there was only one other ship in crossing the Drake Passage through the storm, and it was a Brazilian or a Chilean cargo ship, which ended up losing its entire cargo and almost capsizing. So it was quite the experience.
2: Wow, and so Mother Our, Nature welcoming you. <laughs> oh, hello.
3: Yeah, yeah, so I say we had the best of the best and the best of the worst.
4: Yeah. Um,
3: But it was a real experience that pulled us together very early on. And, again, once we boarded the ship, uh, part of the expedition crew from the Cork Expeditions really taught us things that we needed to know. And I can't tell you how many times they said, and if you do not follow our instructions, you will die.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so it it really put us in a different frame of mind, and that we really had to look out for each other. Um, one of the other messages that Robert shared with us that in the history of mankind, we were now part of a group of less than one hundred thousand that had ever slept on the continent of Antarctica. Oh. So we are part of a very, very, very small group and, again, with that, you know, comes great responsibility. And Robert also ends probably all of his um, talks, all of his presentations with the quote, the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will take care of it. So it's a wake-up call for all of us and to really own, okay, what can I do? It has to start with that personal, what can I do? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and I think that that um, is exactly what has been going on for years, is that given the conversation around climate has been so scientific, there has been the belief that, Well, first of all, if people did believe that it was actually true, then there has been the belief that, well, it will be taken care of at that high level. And there's now um, an embracing of the belief that, well, no, we're all in this together and we have to do something about it. So the premise of this expedition where you are taking emerging leaders, you're taking youth who will you know, who are just at the beginning of shaping their careers and and how they will contribute to the world. You know, this is really an opportunity to influence an entire generation.
3: Absolutely. We talked about that the very first day uh, when all the scientists were together and the students and VP, and... We talked about how we create a level of equality amongst that group, so you have these renowned academic scientists who, you know, as part of their training, they're asked a question, they give an answer. And we wanted to create a dynamic where the students were equal to the scientists, were equal to BP, were equal to the expeditioners. and. By doing so, that led us to a very uh, different conversation. But we also talked about, you know, from an intergenerational perspective, um, we, we and I used that to frame the older generation that was there, that our generation is just trying to keep the ship from sinking, but that the next generation or next generations, they really need to turn the ship around. Um, and that is probably an even greater challenge. So it was, it was all around urgency, where we are, um, what's happening, how quickly it's happening. And you know, just one of the statistics that uh, has been shared with us you know, through this process is that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, their assessment reports, use all different types of models and scenarios and even the most aggressive or the the worst case scenario in terms of um, parts per million, Mm. uh, sea level rise, temperature increase, atmospheric temperature increase, that the past three years, the data shows that we've actually exceeded the worst case scenario. Mm. So we have not even... Slowed the ship down uh, much, much less. You know, started to reduce our impact.
2: So
3: we have a lot of work ahead of us.
2: Well, you know, it occurs to me that um, since we have created this mess, we, the you know, current generation, older generation, um, and yet have along the way um, learned some things and gathered some wisdom, and I dare say wisdom of getting older, um, probably the best thing we can do in terms of impacting the future is to help that emerging group of leaders to essentially um, learn the construct within which they can solve problems. You know, as you talked about systemic thinking, um, I I believe, personally, having been um, in organizations, in corporations, a consultant and a coach um, for most of my career, it's only been in the last 20 years that the conversation about systemic thinking has been occurring. Um, And I dare say it's been in the last five or ten where we've seen evidence of organizations acting as if systemic issues exist. And yet it still is not the norm. It is not the the baseline way of thinking for most leaders in organizations. And so given that we've learned a little bit about that, as you say, taking a group like this, helping them understand what is it, how to do it, and then letting them use it to get to the results and get to solutions may be the best thing we can do for them. Uh,
3: I agree. And what it does initially is raise a lot of questions in their own mind. And, you know, I've been asked this several times uh, since I've been back and I've shown, you know, just these incredible Pictures and a film, and it, it just stuns people into silence on a lot of levels,
4: mm-hmm.
3: but one of the most important is, Oh my gosh, what can I do and It really forced me to think and and we talked about this with the students as well is to calculate your own carbon footprint.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's just amazing how many in this group, very educated, who had not done that yet. And once you do that, it's astonishing and it tells you exactly what you need to start doing or, or not doing. Um, but to to frame it in a way that, you know, you don't feel like you're compromising someone's quality of life, but that there are different options and there are different ways to, to you know, solve the problems. And
4: um,
3: that that's a great start, both at the individual level and at the corporate level.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: The do challenge you... at... A... Go ahead. Yeah. The challenge at the corporate level is once you do this, it is really an eye-opener and it really forces you to make the choice mm-hmm. of, wow, that's too big of a change. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue on business as usual uh, or you make radical shift in how you look at your operations um, you know, throughout the, the value chain.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I know that um, you work with organizations to help them understand some of this, and so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you do that and give us some examples.
5: We'll be right back. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
1: Consulting. Consulting, developing leaders worldwide.
5: Hey, Dad.
4: What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open.
5: Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the US Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
1: The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cleggett broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets, clear thoughts in a complex world.
5: The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Welcome back. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Darcy Winslow today. So, Darcy, let's talk a bit about some of the work you do with organizations and and how organizations can actually um, assess their own impact on the earth and, you know, how they then, you know, what that does for them. Sure. Uh, Just to pick up where we left off on the footprint,
3: I think it is, probably the single most important thing that any organization can do, you know, whether you're a family, a community, or a corporation, and, you know, I can certainly talk from Nike's perspective that when we first did that, just breaking it down into rather large chunks of what you actually control Mm. in your business model, so for us, um, our buildings, the creation of our product. That is something that we have 100% control over. The second ring is estimating the contribution of the impact of what you influence. So for us, that would be our contract manufacturing sites. Hmm. And then to a lesser extent, uh, where we don't have much influence, but yet we have choices, and that would be in our material suppliers, uh, our transportation partners, etc., so
4: uh,
3: once you do that assessment, you can really understand where the greatest impacts from a, a carbon uh, emission perspective comes from within your business. And then in collaboration with organizations that now exist uh, around the world, you, you can start to find ways to mitigate your, your impact, to lower your impact.
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: When we first started this work several years ago, those, many of those organizations didn't exist. Today, uh, in collaboration with the group such as Ceres, there is an organization called Business for Innovative Climate and Energy Policy. And many, many uh, large multinational corporations have now joined this. And it's an effort to really push for strong, aggressive policy. Uh, on carbon emissions and to work in collaboration to help lower those. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
3: and and those types of organizations are open to anybody, it's not a closed society. Mm-hmm. So that gives me great hope that, you know, companies who may have been tentative um, to begin to look into their footprint and how they mitigate that. Um, there are now avenues, there's partnerships, collaboration, coalitions that exist that can help them um, find their way more quickly. Well,
2: and what I understand about this is very often um, at first blush an organization will see um, what is very obvious and they'll say, oh, you know, we're using you know, X millions of gallons of water to produce our product. And then, in fact, when they dig deeper, they, um, you know, get closer to, well, hmm, and where does that water come from and what has to happen to it before it gets to us and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and then how much water does it take to, um, you know, keep it cold or, you know, et cetera. So so that they, there are layers of understanding of this that then will influence how they create or produce or ship um, products.
3: Exactly. And again, that gets to systems thinking or if you'd like to call it a life cycle assessment. It really forces you to go all the way upstream and downstream. And if you are a consumer goods company, if you create products for consumers, in order to really understand that entire value chain, you have to include the consumer. Mm. Because of the, once you make the sale to the consumer, you know, most companies, the relationship ends there in terms of ownership of the product.
4: Mm.
3: And more and more companies are now extending that product ownership through the life cycle to the end of that particular product's life. So whether it can be recycled, composted, upcycled, downcycled, uh, there is an extended relationship with the consumer that's necessary in order to do that.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And that actually becomes one of the most difficult challenges since, you know, again, for Nike, product is literally in... 150-plus countries around the world. Right. So how do you really regain that? If you can't, then you have to rethink how you design the product, the materials that go into the product, and what happens to them at the end of their life cycle. Do they exist forever in a landfill, mm-hmm. or can they compose, can they be taken apart for um, other use? Well,
2: let's you since you've spent you know, most of your career at Nike, let's let's use a Nike shoe as an example. It's a perfect example. Um, from you know, just thinking about that face value, it seems like a Nike shoe would last forever because they're really good shoes, <laughs> and, you know, and and they do tend to last really long. And so, if they go into a landfill, it seems like it's just going to be there.
3: That that was absolutely true. But back in nineteen ninety nine we set twenty twenty goals and it was around zero waste, zero toxics, closed loop systems. Those still exist today, but now they've added um, the energy and water component for our product and really understanding um, again what what the product's footprint is, so to speak, whether it's a shoe or a mm-hmm. garment or an accessory, a bag, something like that. So once we set those goals, we really had to uh, understand what the impacts were. And I'll give you some examples. At that time, uh, to create one pair of shoes, we actually had to create the equivalent of three shoes based on the amount of material and the waste that was created out of that. So that was a first assessment, how do we reduce that amount of waste to ultimately zero. Um, We've now recently calculated, or I should say Nike has calculated, uh, that they know the carbon footprint of, on average, for each pair of shoes. It's a starting point. How do you reduce that and what are the choices that we have? How do we work with our upstream material vendors? our manufacturers, our transportation partners to reduce that footprint ultimately to zero. Uh, same in, you know, the case of water, you brought up water. Apparel is an extremely water-intensive industry. And so by understanding your water footprint, where that water is coming from, how do you create technologies, processes that reduce the amount of water that's actually required to create the, the product? Hmm. So it's a, it's it's not an overnight um, obviously an overnight solution right but really understanding upstream and downstream you can you can be pretty darn creative
2: mm. and you know it makes me, if you use the um, metaphor earlier about um, turning the ship you know it makes me think about how these large multinational corporations I mean talk about um, you know taking time to turn the ship um, it would be it, I mean, what is what is the prognosis here? I mean, can they really change, or is it? Do we have to depend on newer organizations to be the ones that you know just off the off of the right off the mark? You know, they're the ones that create their organizations so that they will be sustainable and their products, you know, will have less impact.
3: Well, this is. This is a tough question. I think if you look at the data that, again, the IPCC has put forth and the different models, um, this is going to take a massive effort by every organization, every individual, every government uh, if we are, in fact, going to reach acceptable levels of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, Right now, they're estimating that if we continue to do business as usual today, that the carbon in the atmosphere, the CO2 in the atmosphere, will reach close to 1,000 parts per million by the year 2100. And so I'll put that into context. Um, Right now, we're at about 385 parts per million. They're estimating, and again, we've never been here before, but they're estimating that we need to cap it at 400 if we are to, you know, live the lifestyle that we live today. Um, The hockey stick actually begins to occur in terms of CO2 in the atmosphere, temperature change, atmospheric temperature change. Uh, The hockey stick starts to happen around the year 2030 and we've already put so much in motion that it is going to take a monumental effort globally for us to, again, turn the ship around. Um, The current proposals by many of the uh, countries that will be part of the Copenhagen uh, negotiations, climate change negotiations in December, many have already put forth Uh, their proposals for capping uh, CO2 emissions and then reductions. And even those current proposals don't get us even close to where we need to be. Um, But if you use simulators, and I can actually give you um, the link to the sites for the simulators that have now been um, posted publicly, if we do the most aggressive, if we adopt the most aggressive scenarios, Then we start to get close by the year 2100. We don't quite reach 400 parts per million, but, you know, it's in the range of 425. Mm. Um, So that was a long-winded answer to your question. It can't just be the startups. It's got to be the existing, you know, multinational corporations today, and the government's taking a really strong stand.
2: Mm. Well, we have. <clears throat> excuse me. We have the opportunity here. You know, given that we have information, and information is power. We have the oppor- the opportunity to make a difference. We're going to talk more with Darcy Winslow when we come right back.
5: The bottom line in business. Voice America business.
1: Consulting. Developing leaders worldwide. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business.
5: The Bottom Line in Business, Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposita. We're speaking with Darcy Winslow today, founder of the DSW Collective, Designs for a Sustainable World. So, Darcy, before we went to break, you were talking about um, links, put that website that um, people could go to to um, learn more and, and actually feed into a simulator in terms of the impact and carbon footprint And so tell us about what that is.
3: Yes, it's a a climate simulator that has been in development over the past three years, and they're now at the point where it will be used at the Copenhagen Climate Change Negotiations that I mentioned. And what it does is takes input, um, and, and we use this in advance of the actual expedition to the continent with the students. Right. What what we did is we broke the students up into three groups that roughly represented the makeup of the global population, so a small group that represented the developed countries, a very large group that represented the developing countries, India, China, et cetera, and then a small group that represented the underdeveloped countries uh, and those that really have the lowest footprint in the world. And we actually simulated the negotiations of how to set um, targets to, in terms of the the year in which they would cap their emissions. So,
4: um,
3: for example, uh, the USA would reach an 80% reduction by 2050. And then at what year they would start reducing their actual emissions. And we would go through different rounds of that uh, from the developed, the developing, and the underdeveloped countries and plug those numbers into the simulator, uh, which I'll give you the link in a minute, and then show what effect that would have on, again, the the primary uh, indicators, such as atmospheric temperature, Mm -hmm. uh, parts per million, et cetera. And it, it sparks great conversation and the necessity for collaboration amongst the different groups. So they would start to send liaisons, you know, from the underdeveloped countries over to the developed countries, et cetera, and, hey, we can't do this without you. And it's exactly the type of collaborative um, uh, environment that we wanted to set. So this this site, the simulation, was just made public uh this week. And if you go to if you Google C Roads, C-R-O-A-D-S, R O A D S, it will take you to that link and then you can actually get on one of the um, the menu options. It's called C Learn. And you can start to play around you know, with the simulation to really get a sense of how aggressively we need to move
2: in the next few years. Mm, that's great. I'll make sure I put that on the website. Um, so let's talk a bit about the expedition itself. Um, give us a couple of good stories.
3: Sure. Once we landed... Uh, our first port of call was a place called Bellingshausen Station, and this is one of the major uh, research sites on on the continent. it 's actually on the peninsula, but there are many different research bases there. Like I said, there are fourteen different countries that actually have a presence uh, on the ice. And it's a very important place because it's also where Robert Swan has built what he calls his eBase, and it's a freestanding, um, alternative energy-powered base where he can do research, it's a learning center, and he has spent, let's see, this past spring he spent two weeks there, uh, completely solar-powered, wind-powered, and um, and would engage students around the world um, from this base. He's planning next summer to spend, sorry, next winter, the Antarctic winter, five months at this base, completely unsupported um, by any other energy source other than renewable natural energy sources. Um, it's also a place that, up until a few years ago, was horribly, horribly polluted um, with building materials, et cetera, as they you know, built these research bases. So he undertook a mission to clean up the entire area. So it's amazing. So that was our first port of call. And then over the next five days, we continued south along the peninsula and actually uh, a couple of points on the continent, one of which was a camping site Again, we were one of we are now one of very very few uh, groups who've ever had this opportunity. But it was it was just a clear, cloudless, windless night, and the temperature uh, may have gotten to 20 degrees. Uh, so still relatively cold. It was Austral summer, but we divvied or camped, and bivy, uh, sleeping in a bivy sack is just your sleeping bag with a a sleeve over it so that you're not in a tent, and I chose to do that with uh, several other women, and we built an ice fort around us to help her any wind, but the stars that night were like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, there's literally no light pollution for thousands of miles. And just to be able to have that experience and to hear, you know, the glaciers calving in the background, these huge booms of thunder, and then you could hear, you know, the ice actually falling into the ocean uh, all night long. It was just a surreal experience, and, you know, I think everyone walked away from that night just thinking, wow, this, this is...
2: A once-in-a-lifetime experience. Hmm. This will be something you're going to be talking about for the rest of your life. This sounds so amazing, Darcy. Um, you know, I think on some level it really takes courage to engage in something like this, and courage on a couple of levels. One is, um, gee, you know, this is a, a like pioneering, and you certainly aren't going to be getting, you aren't going to be in the creature comforts, um, and there are dangers, you know, and and the other is it takes courage of spirit and really kind of knowing who you are. Um, in the last couple of minutes we have, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what got you to this moment where you decided you wanted to do something like this?
3: Mm. The expedition itself or to be involved to the level I am in issues of sustainability?
2: Well, let's talk about getting you involved in in levels of sustainability.
3: Well, that was in many ways a long journey, but also a very short journey. Um, In the late 90s, several events culminated in a wake-up call that, for me, said we cannot continue to do business the way we do it today. Mm-hmm. And that was both on a business level but then also on a personal level, um, you know, concerning my husband's health and my health and, and two very uh, life-changing experiences uh, and understanding the root cause of that. So that turned the page for me and I've never looked back. Um, and that was 1997, Mm. and so that has just led to an ever-deepening journey and understanding of what we need to do and, you know, a personal exploration of realizing, well, what can I really do? Mm. Um, And the answer to that is, well, we do have choices. We can do nothing. We can lead. We can follow and for me, uh, you used the term pioneer. I believe that before pioneers come prospectors,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know, and to be comfortable out on the edge, um, you know, you can't go so far out on the edge that people don't even know you're out there. Sure. But, but to really be comfortable uh, asking those hard questions and, and also being comfortable not knowing the answers, being very humble not knowing the answers, um, but to work with people to collaborate and to just continue the exploration process of what we can do. And for me, you know, just with the expedition and having this opportunity to combine that with certainly my love of the outdoors and anything associated with sport or physical activity, um, it's just been, you know, again, the culmination of so much... Uh, that's important to me, but it's also reinforced that, you know, that is where my heart, that's where my spirit is, that's where my work needs to be.
2: And that's what makes it so incredible. You're connected with your spirit, you're aligned with what matters to you. Darcy, you're an inspiration to all of us, and I know people want to know more about you and the work you do and how can they reach you.
3: They can reach me at Darcy at dswcollective.com
2: dswcollective.com Great. Mm -hmm. Darcy, thank you so much for being here. We're honored to have this conversation with you today. Well, Thank you very much, Cheryl. And remember everybody to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Estabita.